Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Uh, my name is Taylor, and I'm here as a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. Hi, I'm Misha, and I'm also here as a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. And I'm Travis, and I'm also here as a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. Awesome. So in this episode, we're talking about the municipal election from an eco-socialist perspective. And in this podcast, we don't really intend to go over particular candidates in detail or go over a talking point. Our goal here is to discuss what it means to be a socialist in an election period and how we as socialists can take best advantage of the election time in order to further our vision of a democratic future. So I'll start off by talking, I will talk a bit about the election actually, because it is worth mentioning that for this municipal election in Winnipeg, there is not even somebody who you could call a social democrat or who's representing anything that's really outside of the capitalist interest in any significant way. Glenn Murray, who is currently leading pretty significantly in the polls last I saw, if you look at his page and scroll down the endorsements, you kind of get whiplash because you'll see an endorsement from you know, the Winnipeg Labor Council. And then you'll also see an endorsement from Gail Asper of the Asper Foundation, which is uh, very much a prominent capitalist here in Winnipeg. And seeing those two endorsements next to each other is kind of demonstrative of the fact that really there's not much to choose from, but people tend to veer towards the lesser of two evils. With candidates, you'll often see the language of we as a community or city, whatever it is, need to come together and unite. And the fact that we live in a class society where different people's interests are in contradiction with one another is not acknowledged at all. And by bringing everybody kind of under the same umbrella, these competing interests just aren't addressed, aren't acknowledged, and aren't a part of the discussion. 
in these elections. Often capitalist interests are represented as what's best for everybody and in everybody's best interest. So we look at things like business-friendly urbanism, small businesses, public-private partnerships. These are really at the forefront of a lot of discussion around these elections. But as socialists, we need to highlight these contradictions as they are happening and also highlight what is not being discussed at all. We need to use this as an opportunity to really start these discussions so that people can actually have the opportunity to approach these issues with more in mind than just something like urbanism or supporting small businesses, supporting community in that way, so that you're able to make more of an informed decision, also just have the opportunity to think more critically about what's going on, because the current climate doesn't really encourage that kind of critical thinking. But I will pass it off to Misha. Thank you, Taylor. So a really common talking point you hear from politicians during election cycles pretty generally is, you know, whenever issues around, you know, social programming are brought up, things like affordable housing or different programs that we might support as socialists, politicians will say, you know, isn't that would be lovely if we could do that, but there just isn't the money. There's not the the, the room for that in the budget is the kind of classic excuse for, um, or kind of a a kind of frontline excuse for denying the possibility of different programs that could benefit people. And uh, in this particular election season, this has kind of been revealed as a big contradiction in some ways, because groups such as Winnipeg Police Cause Harm, um, Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg, have really pointed out how the issue of the budget is largely that or a little under one third of the city's entire budget are going to the police. So the money is there. It's just a question of where is it going and who is benefiting from it. And one thing that is pretty notable about this election season is that this issue is getting pushed by left-wing activists in the city by Winnipeg Police Cause Harm, as I mentioned, are kind of sort of on the forefront of doing that. It seems like every politician in their public addresses is sort of addressed, well, usually sidestepping the question, but, you know, having to be confronted by it and weasel their way out of it in some way, because it doesn't seem like there's a a super serious commitment to defunding the police. Glenn Murray has made some statements to the effect of canceling the helicopter and whatnot, but we've seen no candidate at this point uh, call for a full uh, 10% reduction in the police budget, which is, I believe, what is being called for by some activists as just a starting point for how to reshape the budget. And other candidates very much are just saying they don't support this at all, but they need to reform the police somehow. Others are kind of making, as mentioned before, kind of making gestures towards changing or cutting certain things, but really without a lot of um, uh, specificity or kind of clarity around what they're actually planning to do about that, which signals to me that there's not a, a strong level of commitment, but this is something that as people on the left in the city, I think is important to put a bit of pressure on to make politicians have to actually state their positions on, even if they don't give us the answers that we would like, at least they're 
out there and they're having to be confronted by this. There have been some interesting kind of proposals. We, as Solidarity Winnipeg, we did a public discussion about the municipal election recently, and one person brought out the idea of showing up to debates or talks that different politicians are doing and submitting questions to, you know, press certain issues that were really kind of important in this moment, specifically around police and the police budget and defunding the police. But there are other things as well that we can we can not only just talk about how much the candidates all suck and how terrible this is, but actually start putting pressure on people, start even if they're not we're not um getting a candidate promising to any of them, people are hearing these different issues being brought up over and over again. And hearing the inadequate answers coming back from the people who are positioning themselves as like leaders in the city. Um, so I'll pass it over to you, Travis. Thanks. Um, yeah. And thanks to you both for sort of introducing the landscape of, of this municipal election. And even though we, you know, decided not to get into specific candidates platforms, we've kind of given a bit of a sense of what's on the table, uh, what's in the discussion. And uh, before we talk about, more tactics like the the one that you mentioned, Misha, from our public discussion. And before we also talk about just elections in general and what that means as socialists, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the context leading up to this particular election here in Winnipeg. And I guess like the context around social movements. So looking back at the last few years, it's kind of a little bit unbelievable uh, based on where we are right now. You would think that by this point with the election coming up in you know a couple of months that there'd be like a lot of action going on but there isn't so in 2019 there was a lot of action around the climate crisis where there was the really major rally in downtown winnipeg a lot of youth then there was also a lot of solidarity efforts for wetsuit and and those were kind of like the bigger collective political actions that were happening that year, right before the pandemic. Then despite the pandemic, tens of thousands of people still got out and showed a lot of energy following the lead of uh, Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg. They led the rally following the murder of George Floyd. And yeah, like things were really ramping up despite burnout kind of starting due to the pandemic on the left. And it was great because that was when a lot of things were pushed into the public consciousness in a, you know, a major way. So, you know, like a lot of stuff around police in Winnipeg and the budget was being discussed, but that was already two years ago. And it's not really in the conversation as much as it should be at this point in the election. As Misha pointed out, barely anyone is calling for any meaningful change, both candidates or like massive protests or anything. Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, the a lot of this is brought on by the pandemic. Like a lot of organizers really shook up momentum and people had to figure out how to do things in a remote way. And a lot of things changed, but capitalism didn't stop. So like <laughs> we still have to continue putting that kind of pressure on politicians and people in office the way that we were in 2020. This is sort of anecdotal, but what I've been seeing in a lot of groups in Winnipeg on the left is people are really spread thin and there's been a lot of burnout, a lot of people in many groups at once. And it's like hard to, hard to be like super politically active or have a lot of like strategic demonstrations going on. Also like in 
to put that in context, the right in Winnipeg has been more active than it's been a long time in like a really like open way with stuff around mandate freedom and lots of demonstrations and really noisy, annoying stuff. But yeah, it is happening. Uh, so that's just a little bit of, of context around movements in the city right now leading up to this election. If you don't mind me jumping in just quickly to make a connection from what you just said back to my piece, like really talking about the way that different politicians are even talking about the police budget right now, I think really it does have to be put in context for what you just said, Travis, of the George Floyd protests, uprisings in 2020. The conversations, as limited as they are, wouldn't be happening without that. Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg had a petition calling for like the full abolition of the police that got like 160,000 signatures to it, which is just kind of unprecedented for Winnipeg politics. So just want to kind of explicitly bring that connection together a bit of like that work that was done at that time is kind of setting up some of the stuff that's possible now, even though it feels like limited in a lot of ways and frustrating that people aren't, you know, no one's committing to like cutting 10% of the police budget other than a couple of city councillors. The fact that that's like in the conversation to begin with is because of the work that Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg, Winnipeg Police Cause Harm have done. Yeah, there is a lot of burnout for sure. I've experienced it myself. I've seen it in some of the people I know who are involved in politics. But at the same time, one commissioner just stated, we have been seeing changes made. And when people come together on a significant level, when you have thousands of people who come together for one issue, those moments are really special. And it's those moments that as socialists, as, um, you know, people who are passionate about this change, those are the moments you really need to take advantage of and continue to create a space where people can come together and fight for those changes. And I think that's what's something like a group, Justice for Black Lives, as well as Winnipeg Police Cause Harm have done very well since that time because they had that momentum and they have been keeping it going. For me, one of the reasons burnout can feel so prominent is because democracy as we currently experience it is exclusively in the political realm, if you can even call it that. We don't have any say in the workplace who our bosses are, what our hours are, what our wages, some public institutions like schools and libraries, those are completely out of our control. And that can be exhausting, but it is a reality of the system we're working within right now. So when we have those moments where people are coming together, it is all the more important to take advantage. But at this point, this is the system we're operating within. And Travis, I think you have a bit more to say about that. Yeah, it's just something else about elections in capitalist democracy. So yeah, like democracy as a term is often used to just describe like voting in an election. And, you know, like even politics more broadly is something that people often think of as something that you're just doing, you know, when there's an election happening, whether it's provincial, federal, or municipal, or even on a smaller scale. But it's like the election is something that's 
been organized by the government or some force greater than than me, the individual, and I'm going to show up and cast my ballot, make an informed decision, and that's my right as a, a citizen. And and yeah, like that is what people usually consider democracy. But that's a pretty narrow understanding, which you know is understandable because that's what many of us have grown up with. But as socialists, like we we have bigger dreams for what democracy can be. This is things like mass participation of everyday people in making decisions about their futures. This could be at many different scales, like Taylor mentioned. We don't get any say over who our bosses are. So democracy could be something in the workplace where you're democratically running a workplace together as workers. And then other things in your community beyond who your counselor is. There's a lot of things that come from above that if we dreamt bigger could be something that are things that are decided on by a community together democratically. So things like this build power for anti-capitalists in our communities. These things can happen outside of these like formalized elections that happen every now and then. These kind of decisions can be made every day at many different scales in our lives. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that socialists in Winnipeg, outside of this election, we can start to think about democracy as as something that we're building and engaging in together all the time, rather than something that's given to us and that we participate in, in like a formal way. Yeah, what you're saying about this kind of more expansive understanding of democracy just made me think, I was talking to someone the other day, like about leftist politics, and they were saying to me about how like the idea of thinking about democracy, the very limited way we understand it versus the kind of way we could have so much more democracy in our lives and in so many ways in different institutions and our workplaces was sort of the thing that got them interested in socialist politics to begin with. That's a really powerful idea and I think useful when elections do come up for us as socialists to kind of put forward this vision. Even on a personal note, I'm less experienced in organizing in the city and still like working on learning about a lot of stuff that, that is involved in, in being a socialist. And for me, like when an election like this rolls around at first, my reaction is like, why should I even care? Because yeah, like nobody who's on the table is even going to have any ideas like close to what I want in society. But then asking these kind of questions really helps in having these kind of discussions. And this is where, you know, all these ideas can sort of come up and people, people like me can start to think about broadening the horizons of what can be done during an election. Yeah, and that brings us to a concept of how do we relate to or think about elections as socialists when so many of the options available to us are just so clearly lacking in like fundamental ways where it can feel like sometimes the decision that people make out of that is like not to vote at all or to vote and spoil a ballot or something like that. And we'll get to this a bit later, but there's sometimes often like a, a moralizing conversation about do you need to vote for the, the least bad person just to make sure that the worst person doesn't get in. One kind of framing to start thinking about this is through the concepts of non-participation versus non-involvement. So non-participation is just not participating in the formal process of an election, like not voting or spoiling your ballot or something like that. Whereas like non-involvement is just like not 
engaging in politics like whatsoever. And there is an important difference here, I would say. And this difference often gets flattened, you know, in a lot of media coverage of elections. If there's really low voter turnout, what I notice is there's often a lot of bemoaning this fact, saying that young people don't appreciate the fact that they live in democracies or different sort of moralizing things about this. And, you know, it's an interesting question to ask why low voter turnout happens. It can happen for a number of reasons. It can be just people completely tuning out of politics altogether, but it isn't necessarily a indication that people don't care. That's very much not what the number of ballots is is gauging because a lot of people are looking at the different available candidates, even people who don't necessarily like share socialist or radical politics are looking at it and saying like, what are any of these people doing for me, for my community? They're more about building their kind of profession as a politician or in it for kind of self-interest, or they're sort of obviously serving the interest of capitalists, even if people don't kind of have the language to specifically identify that, but it just feels like there's a lot of reasons why people get completely alienated from the formal political process that we have. And just saying that that's because people don't care or don't appreciate democracy is like a pretty inadequate answer to that, I would say. It can be helpful once you kind of think about that to kind of go past worrying about why people aren't voting and then to think about how are people actually doing politics in their lives and what kind of options does that open for us? How can an election be a time when we have political conversations with people that aren't necessarily about which candidate we endorse, but are thinking about what is democracy and what can it be? What are the issues that really matter in this city, province, country, whatever kind of context you're in? And how can those get pushed to the forefront? Maybe it's through voting that we don't need to necessarily discount that entirely, but it can be through other ways as well. And so there's a there's an important distinction there between yeah, participation and involvement that way. Uh, and yeah, over to you, Taylor. In particular, I feel, especially so in leftist spaces, there can often be a conversation that is a lot more simplistic than a lot of the points you just brought up. You know, we often look at voting as something you should or shouldn't do, and that's it. If you do it, then, well, maybe you're voting for the lesser evil, and ultimately your vote will do some kind of good for very specific communities. Or if you're voting, maybe you are just legitimizing the actual system itself and really not doing anything to further your goal as a socialist, if you are one or a leftist in general. And I just feel it's not a super helpful framework. I think that we need to look at a lot of the points that you just brought up, Misha, if people aren't voting, okay, why is that? Why are people feeling alienated? And how can we, as a group, as an individual, connect with those people and work together towards something that we think is actually meaningful? Especially around the conversation of lesser evil, you do have to recognize that with something like strategic voting, strategically voting for the liberals to keep out the conservative government, or even if it's the NDP, those are ultimately all capitalist parties. And in Canada, certainly not serving the needs of Indigenous peoples at all. You know, we're looking at colonial capitalist parties. And again, it's, it is a nuanced conversation, but I think there's a lot of reasons to go either way. And I think that saying someone either is or isn't doing what they should be for voting 
uh, is not necessarily helpful, but there should be a purpose behind the actions we take in our political activism and our political experience and voting can serve a purpose at times. But really, I think it all does come back to community and looking to actually connect with people and what they feel their needs are and how you can actually work together towards that. If your community feels that their needs aren't being met, what can you do, right? We can't just settle for the two, three-year election cycle because if we get trapped in that, it's not allowing for conversations to happen organically. And there's so much life that happens between those election periods, I think, one of the things that's beneficial of an election period is that we can see it's coming. And as socialists, it is something we can prepare for, whether it's before or after the election, working towards having those political conversations and having those spaces to contribute to political development of individuals, of communities. And that predictability can be beneficial in that. But I think going back to a bit earlier too, I think a lot of the not necessarily spontaneous movements, because they are obviously coming from something. If you look at Black Lives Matters, that's years and years of buildup and something like the environmental protests in 2019 senior or the year before, like those are existing issues. But the amount of people who show up for them is so substantial and that's something you can't always necessarily predict, but it's also extremely important to connect with others in that moment and see how you can continue those conversations throughout. And you can continue those conversations to the next election period and keep that in the public general thought, just have it as an issue still for people to think about not letting it slip away. And there's just a lot that goes into it. So really, when you boil something down to a simple you should or shouldn't, you're missing out on a lot of the nuance there. And as socialists, you know, it's important to have those conversations to critically think and really take advantage of each situation that arises, depending on what is most appropriate in that situation. There is no rule book really that we can follow and there will never be a super specific answer but we just do what we can and ideally have those conversations make that space to develop politically yeah on that topic of not letting different issues that have been brought up and kind of fought for by different social movements, like not letting those issues slip away during an election season. There's a couple of different ways we can push these issues beyond just having personal conversations with people as conversations about the election come up as people are kind of more attuned to politics during election season. One of those ways is running a specific campaign to get an issue into the public spotlight. I've already mentioned it before, but I I do think like Winnipeg Police Cause Harm has been doing a really excellent job of this lately in terms of just making different politicians kind of have to be confronted by the topic of the police budget by having that not get lost and having that kind of 
hypocrisy of the issue of who has money in the city can continuously exposed just in the total inadequacy of the answers we're getting from different political candidates about that. Also kind of making specific calls for for actions, something, yeah, like a total like 10% cut of the police budget or other different proposals that have circulated out there with a group of people or with a specific kind of campaign with um, you know, just a group of individuals who are with a, an organization can be really great vehicles for pushing some of these items in the conversation and kind of making that space exist, even if there's like this intentional kind of attempt to suppress it and just really kind of pushing it through there. And another way to do that beyond confronting politicians about it is actually to run candidates. And this is, you know, a whole kind of big question of beyond just voting, like, should you run as like a city councillor? You can just do that. That's a thing that I think, yeah, even like a lot of people don't necessarily know that that's like as readily an option as it kind of is in some ways. And before asking some of the sort of black and white answers around supporting electoral politics or not supporting electoral politics, I think the more interesting thing to ask is like, what purpose can running a candidate serve? Either running a mayoral candidate can be a bit more high profile or running a city councillor. There's a couple of reasons why you might want to do that, depending on what your goals are. If you're running at various different levels, part of it can be a publicity campaign around if you're trying to make people confront the issue of the police budget, if you're running as a candidate, say like for a city councillor, can kind of put proposals forward to city councillor, vote on different issues. And you do have some say over your community in that way in a pretty direct sense. So if there's certain policy or issues that kind of you can work on the inside or whatever from that position, that might be another reason to run. But the kind of caveat I will put to all of this is that running as a candidate I really don't think it's a good idea to kind of like think of that as separate from a broader social movement, or at least if you're running as a candidate of the left of trying to represent people, you're putting yourself in a leadership position in a certain way, but you need some kind of popular movement to first get you into a position or kind of get your campaign going, but also making sure that that campaign is not just about, you know, getting a certain person into office, that it's about a a broader picture of, you know, the eventual overthrow of capitalism and transition towards eco-socialism. That's that's what we want. We don't necessarily, and that's not going to be like instituted by a new socialist mayor can't just proclaim that to be the case. That can be a moment along uh, a longer path towards that. There's a phrase, people are elected into office, but not into power. So, you know, you only do have so much authority when you're in a position. And if it's especially like a really controversial issue around police budgeting. So basically, if you're if you're running as a candidate, make sure you know what the what the picture is. It's not necessarily just about you. You can do that as part of a movement, but the movement isn't just to support a candidate. If you're trying to do that in a socialism from below kind of way, that's um, I would say that's sort of the approach to bring to it. Uh, and I'll pass it over to you, Taylor. Another thing that comes to mind is the energy it takes to elect a single person, whether it is municipally, provincially, uh, federally. I know with 350.org, they had a list of people they endorsed and they kind of were working to get them elected and climate champions. Oh no, <laughs> it wasn't called climate champions. Somebody like Nikki Ashton or Leah Gazan comes to mind, who I'm pretty sure both of them identify as socialists. And there are times you can see that come out, but at the same time, both of them are individuals. And ultimately, 
again, I'm, I'm kind of veering more towards provincial and federal politics, talking about parties, in particular the NDP, who in our current landscape is the most left party, you could say, certainly more so than liberal and conservative, but even so, uh, as mentioned before, very much capitalist parties and very much a part of the very same structure and contributing to a lot of the same capitalist goals. I think the question of can we run individuals is certainly you can, but like Misha said, you really need the movement behind that person because that one person is never going to be able to overhaul an entire party for any significant change that has happened historically, politically. Um, there are people behind that change that are pushing for it. It's something like like the 10% decrease we're talking about. That wouldn't even be a part of the conversation if it wasn't for groups like Winnipeg police cause harm. And then you get somebody like Glenn Murray saying, oh, we'll get rid of the helicopter. That wouldn't even be a point at all, I don't think, if these movements weren't there to begin with and weren't continually pushing the point and keeping those issues a part of the conversation. I think the main thing we need to consider when looking at individual candidates is just not to get caught up in thinking that one person will fix everything because that will never be the case. And that's why we're proponents of socialism from below bottom up politics. We really do need to build the capacity of individuals politically to really see any significant change. Again, individuals can push issues, but if there's not a movement of people behind them, that change isn't going to happen. And when the actual politics of the party itself are kind of in contention, it can be very difficult to actually see that happen again without people. Um, people really are what make change happen. And yeah, there's just, in any party, there's just a lot. It's a lot you're dealing with. Pushback, red tape, things in these parties are very much done a certain way. And it's just too hard for one person to ever change that. I think in particular, of course, Solidarity Winnipeg, we are really a small group of people. Ideally, for any left movement, you would get to a point that you have an actual significant political organization and running candidates would look a bit different in that case. But with where we are right now, you're looking to run candidates within these existing parties, NDP, Green, Liberal, whatever it is. And there are just a lot of a lot of considerations that need to be taken in with that and the amount of energy it really does take to get somebody elected where perhaps that energy could be better spent in the community or like Misha said if you're pushing a specific uh, issue with the candidate I think it's a bit different but it's a complicated issue it's not necessarily a right or wrong or not a hard yes or no answer but there is certainly a lot to take into consideration. 
as socialists and it can be a tool to move forward, but it's not what we should look at to be a solution because it is not that. Yeah. So you were just talking about people on the left putting their energy into potentially pushing candidates that might be receptive to socialist ideas. But then there's also the question of who can put energy into trying to suppress the candidates and the ideas that are coming from the other side. Again, we haven't talked about specific candidates, but there are candidates running in this municipal election that have goals that are not aligned with what people on the left would would want whatsoever. There's people on the right wing. And there's obviously like a, a lot of people that would welcome that type of change in communities as well. Unfortunately, we've seen that that people on the right are willing to, or there's like maybe more capacity right now for public support of of right-wing ideas that could, you know, translate into votes for candidates that support those ideas. But beyond just talking about which candidate wins, there's also just the, the debates that arise around the different issues that candidates are talking about or that like people are talking about leading up to an election or after an election, things like police budget, where unless people on the left insert themselves into those debates, not just within their own groups, but with people that disagree or, you know, like things that are in like a public forum, like town halls or something, then there's no way that ideas that are coming from the other side would might be challenged. So what you might end up with is these debates being limited to mostly liberal and conservative points of view. And I like with a lowercase L and C, we're not talking about like the federal parties here, but yeah, you might just have like a bunch of business owners at different scales that are talking about issues and not really having people that would be interested in socialism from below, even voicing their concerns on these issues. And also I mentioned that this could be, you know, strategic stuff like public debates, but Also, these types of discussions happen all the time in the workplace or with friends and stuff, you know, like finding the places and having the language to challenge right wing ideas that arise around these elections could be important. So one thing that comes up in elections often, or at least recently in the last number of years, is this idea that you have to talk to people that that you disagree with, like the classic Thanksgiving dinner example of like having those difficult discussions around like hot button issues, the whole country or the whole province might be talking about around an election. But when you think about that concept, but applied to something like this municipal election, that actually like has a lot more impact. So engaging in those kind of discussions, even after the election around the issues that come up during this time, that could be a lot more impactful. Like if you're at a party with 10 people and you're engaged in a discussion about the police budget, a socialist perspective on that could carry a lot more weight. And you might have people that watch the news and heard a little bit about the candidates and thought, oh, this guy seems like the right guy. And then maybe they're still committed to a huge police budget and just like taking the time to maybe like challenge those kind of ideas. Or also when you're talking to people in your community, 
you can like very clearly see how these kind of elections impact the people around you. So if people don't seem to think that it's a big problem that people aren't calling for reduction in police budget, you could say, well, what if there was more money put into public transit and the police just like had a little bit less money? That could be a lot clearer. It's like a little bit less abstract than maybe like a bigger scale election. Before I get into my part, I just want to say on the topic of burnout and the activity of the right, for me at least, like definitely pretty connected. Seeing the People's Party become kind of so like they didn't get any seats, but they had like, you know, 800,000 votes or something in the last federal election. And then the whole trucker convoy that happened through the winter, like was pretty demoralizing in a lot of ways, just in terms of like things you're seeing like downtown and like the just kind of exhausting. So demoralization from the right. And just quickly, I think there is another idea that circulates sometimes on the left that is a bit frustrating around social crises or get worse than more people will see how bad things are and get worked up about it and want to embrace left-wing ideas. And there's a grain of truth. People pay more attention, are willing to think more big picture political change and like issues when things are like really in crisis. But that only leads towards the left if we really work and make sure our ideas are getting out there and that we're putting forward like legitimate campaigns because that can also that energy can also be absorbed by the right a lot of people were frustrated for all sorts of reasons relating to the crises in capitalism and different elements of the the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic and rather than turning towards a more liberating and like socialist vision of how that could be responded to kind of like embrace the convoy and that kind of thing So crisis doesn't necessarily generate more socialists. Yeah, so shifting gears a little bit, one of our members brought up this really important point about how during elections and kind of broadly in general, but a lot of a lot of mayoral candidates specifically have stuff about this in their platform. There's a big kind of thing around uh, the idea of urbanism. Uh, which I'll explain in a minute, and which often like attracts a lot of people on the left get get very excited about it when mayors have different issues that are related to it in their platforms and that kind of thing. And basically what just to define that before we get into some of the critiques we have of it is I would describe urbanism as kind of like a bit of a soft ecological perspective that is interested in like public transport and active transportation. The kind of more radical edge of it, we'll talk about banning cars and that kind of thing and like shifting away from fossil fuels, which that can be that can be good. Usually it doesn't go that far. Another thing about it, I think I could be wrong about this, but my sense is that urbanism became a lot more popular over the course of the pandemic. I think possibly just because everyone was stuck inside for a bit or not going around. So there were a lot more people walking around their communities and realizing like, oh, the whole city is dominated by cars. It would be nice to be able to be a pedestrian and have infrastructure for that. So I think this became a much bigger thing through the pandemic, but there's a kind of long ongoing thing, especially in Winnipeg around different mayors promising to like put in bike lanes or do different like transit plans or create like green spaces in in downtown or whatever that um, really excites a lot of people on the left. And some of these things are good, but also there are some ways that this is used to entice people and then not actually deliver very much of any kind of anything that we would want. So I'll, I'll pass it over to Taylor to explain some of that in more detail. So I feel like we can all agree on its face, things like more bike lanes and creating what could be walkable 
spaces or green spaces. We're just making the city easier to navigate if it's public transit, bike lanes, uh, green spaces, whatever it may be. Sounds good. And I think a lot of it is good, but we have to keep in mind with these things that there is an agenda, particularly when we do look at the municipal election. This is always such a huge part of the conversation. And a lot of it is around business. In particular, I know in my mailbox the other day, I got a little pamphlet about a new bike lane that's coming to Osborne Village in 2023. And a subheading of that often is, oh, you know, or at least what the businesses are going for is, okay, this will make more people come around. It might raise property values. It'll make it more livable. We'll get more money as businesses. We'll have more foot traffic. And then you also potentially see the rise in property value. I know I grew up in... um South Osborne and there's been a ton of that. There's the rapid transit like right there and there's literally so many condos, like so many and they're still popping up. They just keep coming and so much of that. But a big draw of it is the bus is right here. There's this path that goes all the way to U of M and it's just, again, it's not bad on its own necessarily, but when you look at the actual communities that are impacted, And when you see people are being displaced because their rent is too high, and we already know how there is an extreme lack of affordable housing, and then you go into the inner city, you go downtown, and you just make it even more difficult for people to afford a roof over their heads. It's not great. It's not a good thing, despite, again, bike lanes, green spaces, all sounds good. And it is always a huge part of the conversation, but we do have to approach it a bit more critically, in particular when it is coming from candidates like Glenn Murray. Glenn Murray, if you're not familiar, we've talked about him a bit throughout, of course, and he is really the main candidate we're looking at. He's been in politics for quite a while, and I believe he was Winnipeg's mayor from 98 to 2004. And again, he has the Winnipeg Labor Council on his side and then also the creator of the Asper Center, right? So you just really have to be mindful of the purpose behind these actions and who is really being impacted. And urbanism alone is not enough in terms of tackling climate change. It's a start, but again, it's not a solution And there are ways that you can approach it without displacing people, without negatively impacting the lives of others, and without putting business at the forefront of one of the main reasons why we should do this thing. Another thing to consider is, um, because some of those things are positive, even if they do have an agenda, like there's somewhat of a, a, a positive in that there's, you know, more space for, for people who want to ride bikes, which is, you know, not necessarily bad in itself. But then you you also, like, can look at the lack of infrastructure for that being put into other neighborhoods in, in Winnipeg. So, like you talked about, Taylor, there's certain areas that are getting all of these bike lanes, whereas there's areas in the city where people might use bikes as their primary 
mode of transportation or want to, but there's no sort of like investment going into building that infrastructure, like in, in the North End, for example. So yeah, it's not only about maybe like trying to get the support of of people in those certain parts of the city, but just like being negligent to other areas as well. And so with urbanism and you sort of touched on this, Taylor, like with trying to get people out to businesses, it's also the example of bike lanes is like a function of, of bringing people like from the suburbs into the city to live this urban uh, cyclist lifestyle rather than to invest money into building that infrastructure for the people who already live that way out of necessity, not as a choice. We've said that there's good elements of urbanism, but also the issue of kind of the role it can play in gentrification with rising property values, the way that like it gets prioritized in often kind of richer suburban neighborhoods over more working class neighborhoods. I wanted to like articulate some thoughts, you know, how we as eco-socialists can like push this a bit further or like offer visions that build off of the best elements and like expand them in different ways. And so part of the problem with, with urbanism, and this is a bit you know, difficult with how city zoning functions and like how we separate the city and provincial politics. But there sometimes can be a bit of city chauvinism that comes with it. A lot of talk about how to improve cities, but then kind of dismissing a lot of people who live in rural communities as not thinking about environmental issues whatsoever. Part of the problem is there's there's very few options for getting around other than with a car in rural communities, like there's very little in the way of bus services connecting in different communities or integrating them or providing different kinds of possibilities. And that's, I think, a big oversight in some urbanist discourse. I think another kind of connected thing is urbanists often talk about space and how to rethink our relationship to space. And I, I really wish part of that conversation like really centered around land back and talking about who's whose land we are doing urbanism on, which in Winnipeg is the Treaty 1 territory and the, the homeland of the Métis Nation. There's ways of kind of taking some of this, some of the sorts of conversations that can start around urbanism and talking about, well, like, yeah, what is the broader kind of relationship to land here? How can we talk about actual giving land back as part of that in a, in a major way? And more broadly, connecting that with some of our conversation about expanding democracy to all aspects of life a lot of urbanism does become sort of it can get a bit like technocratic is like my sense of it of being like there'll be some kind of specialists in city hall who kind of come up with designs for things and then pass them through and sometimes you do need people who really understand infrastructure to be able to draw up designs i don't know how to build a bridge on a technical like i want an engineer to do that but at the same time i think there's a lot of like community level decisions that need to be involved with how people use space and develop space. And is that development for just like small businesses and capitalists, or is that for people who live there? And maybe those people who live there have some ideas about how they'd like the space that they live in used and what sort of infrastructure they want around them. So I think we can really bring together these ideas of this positive elements of urbanism with a sort of socialism from below concept of democracy to talk about how these need to be different conversations than the ones we're currently having. I don't mean to be too negative on urbanism, but through this engagement with the best elements and critique of other parts of it, we can connect that to some ideas around eco-socialism and putting forward a different kind of 
vision for how we want to live together, what kind of communities we want to be able to have, and what kind of social relationships we want to be able to have with each other. And that's not necessarily going to come through just like some people in government coming up with a plan for how it's going to work. It's going to come through people working and talking with each other to figure that out and having like building building power with each other to be able to enact those things. So yeah, that's just some of my some of my thoughts. There's a, like a whole lot more that could be said about, you know, eco-socialist urbanism or something like that, but some kind of preliminary things out of the way and to kind of bring some of some elements of our conversation together. So yeah, that kind of ties together some elements of democracy and the space we live in and, you know, how we exist in communities together. And if anyone else has more wrapping up points they want to make. Yeah, I sort of touched on this earlier, but I wanted to stress it again at the end. Like I said, as someone who is approaching this election from from this political perspective for the first time, I find it very helpful to think when I'm looking at the the slate of people running in in these positions, like not to get, not to lose hope and to just think about how all of the, all of the time after the election is all time to have discussions and to do political work and to build for the future and not even just like build to the next election, like look at however this election plays out and bring these sorts of ideas to the table. So like looking at the election period as as more of like a fluid thing to me is is helpful and i hope maybe other people can relate to that this is also really the first selection period i'm going through with this perspective and i really am trying to view it or think of it as an opportunity and just really thinking what i can do as an individual and as a part of solidarity winnipeg to start having conversations or to contribute to a space where we can start talking about these things on a broader level and also what it means for us individually. Some of the resources that we use today, we actually had two articles that I read at least. I think we all read them. I'm sure there's plenty more, but there's one article in Briarpatch, which is a very wonderful magazine. Um, if you aren't familiar, I would recommend checking out their website, briarpatchmagazine.com. And honestly, their subscription is pretty cheap too to get a physical or a digital copy of the magazine. But one of the articles is, Is Voting Really Harm Reduction? by David Camfield, who is also one of the members of Solidarity Winnipeg. And then the other article that was a great resource is titled Socialists and Elections, How Can We Participate? And this one was by Maurice Carr on newsocialist.org. And those are great starting points. If after listening to this, you'd like to have a bit more reading, um, I definitely recommend looking into those and we'll probably link them as well in the description of the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. 
If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidaritywinnipeg.ca.